Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hey, Trumpcast listeners, just a quick message before we start today's show. I wanted to let you know that starting the week of September 10th, we're going to be making some episodes of Trumpcast available only to members of Slate Plus. We've talked about Slate Plus here before. It's our membership program. Members are already receiving ad-free versions of Trumpcast and all Slate's other podcasts. But now, our members will be receiving every fourth episode of Trumpcast in its entirety. We love our advertisers, but we want more of our revenue to come from you, the people who listen to this show and care about it. We think that if you care about journalism, you should support it and help it thrive. And that's especially true with a show like this one that doesn't pull any punches. So again, starting the week of September 10th, every fourth episode of Trumpcast will be for Slate Plus members only. If you want to hear every episode of our show and you're not a Slate Plus member, Sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. It's just $35 for your first year, and you'll get no ads and more content from other Slate shows like Slow Burn and The Political Gab Fest. And of course, you'll be supporting the work we do at Slate every day. So don't miss out. Sign up now at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. One more time, it's slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. And now let's get to the show. They didn't come out of campaign. In fact, my first question when I heard about it was, did they come out of the campaign? Because that could be a little dicey. His ex-lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations and fraud charges today. And you heard his lawyer just say, yes, he's lying about that. Uh, as the president said, we've stated many times he did nothing wrong. It's front and center on his mind. He was up in the middle of the night tweeting. He wrote, no collusion, rigged witch hunt at 110 this morning. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who thinks the algorithms are conspiring against him, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Here's what Donald Trump is a genuine master at, changing the subject. Last week, his former lawyer, Michael Cohn, strongly implicated him in felony violations of campaign finance law, orchestrating illegal campaign contributions. That's the hush money paid to Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal just before the 2016 election. That story understandably dominated the headlines. The president implicated in federal crimes. Huge questions. Could a president be criminally indicted? Is it an impeachable offense? And of course, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Longtime loyalists are flipping on Trump left and right, potentially exposing lots of other scandal and wrongdoing by the Trump organization and the Trump crime family. I mean, the Trump family. Until Trump got busy changing the subject, first by canceling his Secretary of State's trip to North Korea, and then by tweeting some crap about Google, and then by ranting and raving like a drunken idiot about CNN and the degenerate fool Carl Bernstein and little Jeff Zucker, whose ratings suck. And everybody responds to this nonsense. Is Google biased against conservatives? Could Trump really do anything about it? Would AT&T, which owns CNN, fire Jeff Zucker? 
Of course not, on all counts. But Trump gains the advantage by kicking up vast clouds of dust on Twitter, his weapon of mass distraction. He's not exactly setting an agenda, but he's diverting the agenda from what it should be, figuring out whether the president is a criminal, and if so, what we're going to do about it. Trump's ability to sow chaos with his Twitter trolling is unparalleled. Our ability to resist his trolling is limited. Because if the president says it, how can it not be news? How can it not be relevant? It's like Infrastructure Week, but about stuff the media can't resist responding to. But here at Trumpcast, we're not taking the bait. We're getting back to topic A, the president's apparent felony. Joining me to talk about it is campaign finance expert Trevor Potter. But first, the president spent a lot of time this week raising and lowering flags over the White House, which were at half-staff over the Capitol in commemoration of the death of Arizona Senator John McCain. Imagine what those flags were thinking. Hey, White House flag. Hey, what are you doing down there, Capitol flag? Well, all all those Capitol flags are flying at half-staff. Why are you still up there? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I didn't see... You guys went down, huh? Yeah, we all did. We're all sort of hanging out down here. Oh, my gosh. Somebody important must have died, and uh, they probably just haven't lowered me yet. Yeah, it's just that all of us are down. You guys been down for a while now? Yeah, we've been down. Hey, guys, we've been down a a while, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. That seems... I'm sure I'll... Oh, here I come. Here I come. I, I, hey, buddy. Hey. Good to see you. Good to be at your level. I don't know what that was about. That I was say, weird, That right? was very odd because usually all the flags lower at the same time and everything. Yeah. Really, I can't actually think of a reason why there'd be a discrepancy. I mean, I can't think of that either, you know, yeah, but it's good to be, God, it's, I, I, I hate having to yell. Um, what, is, what do you think about the wind today? Yeah, I'd say it's a tepid wind. Well, I'm going back oh, up. Whoa. What is going on? White House flag, where are you going? I went, I, they, I'm up back up now. I mean, we're all still down though. What do you think? Do you think someone, do you think there was a mistake and I wonder all if there's be- confusion oh. about if someone's dead or not. Man, doesn't it just seem like there can't be confusion about that? Yeah, but why would I be up and the rest of you guys be at half staff? I don't know. It just really seems like it should be pretty unambiguous whether or not we should be at half or not, right? I just, can you see down there? It looks like there's a lot of weird discussion going on. Yeah. Oh, here I come. I'm coming down again. White House flag. Hey, Hey, good to see you. How are you? What a day up and down. Yeah, I know. Hey, um. Ah, Up, 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 down, up, up, down. Our sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman. All right. Well, you just sort of do what you got to do. Um, this sort of feels inappropriate, to be honest. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. One more thing before we jump into our interview. We're thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. Join us and our fellow politically-minded shows, The Political Gab Fest, Amicus, El Gab Fest, and The Gist, along with, of course, us, Trumpcast. 
Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and have unique opportunities to mingle with us hosts and their fellow fans during our cocktail party. And you can purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. This is going to be fun. Slate Day is at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas on Saturday, September 29th. This is an intimate venue with limited seating, so get your tickets today. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets and information. And if you want to make a weekend of it, which I am definitely going to be doing, the Texas Tribune is offering $100 off festival badges to Slate Day ticket holders. We'll have a link on our event page to learn more about the festival. Again, that's slate.com slash live. Joining me on the line is Trevor Potter. I think it's fair to say he's the country's leading expert on campaign law. He's the former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, where he was appointed by President George H.W. Bush. And he is the founder and president of the Campaign Legal Center, which is a nonpartisan group in Washington that promotes campaign reform. Trevor, thanks for joining me on the show today. Good morning. Nice to be with you. I want to talk to you about a simple question, whether, or maybe not so simple, whether Donald Trump has likely violated campaign laws, and if so, what we're supposed to do about it. Um, the issue that came up last week, again, was two hush money payments to two women, Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal, one for 130000 that was made by Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohn, and the other for $150,000 that was made uh, by American media, the, the National Enquirer. Cohn has pled guilty to two counts of violating campaign finance law by paying the hush money himself to Stormy Daniels. So the question for you, what laws did he break? Well, there are two. One is a contribution limit to a presidential campaign, and the other is the requirement that the campaign disclose spending on its behalf in these circumstances. So the first one, there is a contribution limit of $2,700 to a candidate per election. The payment to Stormy Daniels, because it was done at the request of the candidate and because it is related to the campaign, which is uh, what Cohen says, is excessive. It's you know, almost uh, over $125,000 more than he's allowed to give or to spend at the request of the campaign. So he has an excessive contribution. And then the campaign did not report this contribution, even though the candidate and apparently the campaign knew about it. So they have a reporting violation. Those are the two laws that we're dealing with here. And it doesn't matter if Trump paid him back because Trump could have legally contributed as much as he wanted to his own campaign, right? Correct. That would have been the right way for Trump to do it, is spend the money himself and then uh, report it or have the campaign report it. But it doesn't matter that Trump paid him back because at the moment Cohen made this payment, it was illegally excessive. In fact, it remained Cohen's money and illegally excessive for many months. Trump didn't begin paying him back until the next year. So there's a violation by Cohen up front that continued for quite a while. So if Cohen is telling the truth, did Trump also break the law? That's an interesting question, and it... The answer is, based on Cohen's plea statements, yes, because Cohen says, I broke the law, 
and I did so at the direction of the candidate, and I did so with the coordination and knowledge of the campaign. So Cohen is the key person here in terms of Trump's legal liability, because Cohen is saying, Trump told me to break the law. And so what's the, what would be a charge in that case? Is it a conspiracy to violate campaign law? Probably you could throw a conspiracy charge on top of it, and so you'd have Cohen and Trump and the people in the campaign all conspiring. But directing someone to make an illegal contribution is in and of itself a independent uh, violation. And what's your view, Trevor? I mean, lawyers are, are, are all over this issue, but do you believe that Trump can be indicted while he's in office, or do you think impeachment is the only remedy if Trump committed a federal crime? Well, what we're told is that the Department of Justice has a policy of some long standing that it will not seek the indictment of an incumbent president while in office. Assuming that's true, and everyone seems to admit it is, then I think prosecutors who work for the Department of Justice have to follow that policy. Now, the department could change its policy, uh, but so long as it's in place, I don't think uh, we would expect to see the prosecutors in the Southern District of New York or Mr. Mueller seek an indictment when their department policy says they can't, If they did try to seek an indictment, I would assume they would be overruled in the department or fired for not following department policy. So we don't know whether it's constitutional to indict a president. That's, of course, an entirely different question. The courts would have to resolve it. But it appears for the moment as if the president could be perhaps indicted but not prosecuted, or he could be They could wait to indict him after he had left office. Is there a statute of limitations on campaign finance violations? There is, um, and it's five years, so that's a great question. They would have to move uh, fairly quickly after the end of Trump's term, and I suppose it is possible that means that if he ran and won re-election and they waited another four years, they would be passed... uh, (laughs) the statute. So he'd be running not just for re-election, but for impunity. You know, I hadn't thought about it, but that uh, may well be the case in, in terms of the federal campaign finance violation, yes. You know, one of the things that can be confusing about about uh, campaign finance law is that the FEC investigates violations and assesses fines only, but these are there are also criminal penalties if the Justice Department goes after you. What determines whether something like this is an FEC matter uh, that is subject to a fine or a criminal matter that could get someone sent to prison? Well, you've said it exactly correctly. The FEC is the agency charged with civil enforcement. So it doesn't have the authority to go after someone criminally. It is normally the agent that the agency that occupies the field. That means complaints are filed with the FEC. They take a look at it. Uh, they may investigate it. Uh, if they determine in the course of their investigation that there is evidence that there was not only a violation, but it was a deliberate, intentional, the language in the statute is knowing and willful violation. In those circumstances, they refer the matter to the Department of Justice. Now, what's important here is that doesn't mean the Department of Justice has to wait for a referral. 
if it itself independently comes across evidence of a criminal violation, it can proceed against it, which is exactly what they've done with Cohen. If, in the course of an investigation, they came across evidence of a civil violation, then they would send that over to the FEC to deal with. So there really are two separate tracks here. It is rare for the Department of Justice to come across criminal violations of the election laws because they're not usually looking for them, and they don't usually stumble across them. But somebody could file a complaint both with the FEC saying this is a violation and with justice saying we have evidence that it's a criminal violation. And in theory, both agencies could proceed at once. That's not double jeopardy to to have two investigations into the same thing. It's not. Convicting someone twice or trying them twice would be. But what would happen in real life is if the Department of Justice starting to investigate believing there's a criminal violation, then the FEC would probably hold off on doing anything. It would uh, put the brakes on its investigation for the very practical reason that the people who are being investigated by justice are not going to then respond to FEC questions because there's a danger of incriminating themselves. So they're going to take the fifth at the FEC and the commission won't be able to do much. Yeah. I mean, the FEC has been, in many respects, uh, dysfunctional for n- a number of years. It has a long backlog. It's had vacancies and commissioner seats that haven't been filled. What's going on there? Why is the why does the FEC have such a hard time doing, doing the job it was designed to do? It's a real problem. And, and as a former chairman of the agency, it's a source of considerable distress for me because when I was there now quite a while ago, I worked very hard with my Democratic colleagues. There were three Republicans and three Democrats. The law says that the commission cannot do anything, including literally open a meeting, uh, without a majority vote. So you need four of the six seats to vote in favor of opening an investigation or proceeding to subpoena someone or seeking a civil penalty. And now, about 10 years ago, when the there were a series of wars over commission nominees between the Bush White House and the Democrats in Congress. Uh, seats became vacant. The commission did not have a majority of, of commissioners to exist. In that environment, the Bush White House nominated three Republicans who came out of the recommendations of the Senate leadership and the Republican National Committee, and all three of them were very skeptical of the mission of the FEC, uh, disliked the McCain-Feingold laws, and essentially uh, what's happened is that uh, the commission since then has been in a never-ending set of 3-3 deadlocks over whether to enforce the law, how to enforce <laughs> the law, uh, whether to have rulemakings, etc. And the result of that is the commission has essentially been unable to function for the last 10 years. And does that mean that that violations that might be ordinary civil matters are more likely to become criminal cases, or is there there a clear enough distinction between the minor and the major? Well, I, I think that is possible. What what happens is the commission does the garden variety cases where there's no great dispute and there's no partisan difference. Uh, so if someone files a report late, there uh, a majority of votes for the normal, uh, what they call traffic ticket fine of X dollars a day for a late report. 
But you get into any areas that involve policy disputes like dark money and how to disclose a lot of the money being uh, spent by these outside groups that don't tell anyone who their donors are but run campaign ads, or uh, serious violations such as the Trump campaign. And in those situations, uh, what we've seen is the commission deadlocks 3-3 and can take no action. So it leaves a void. And in that situation, I do think it is more likely that you will see the Justice Department and U.S. attorneys, knowing the commission's doing nothing, taking a look at what appear to be some of the more egregious campaign finance violations. I mean, in the wake of Citizens United, campaign law is is so weak in the United States and so full of loopholes, it seems amazing that anybody bothers to violate it. You can get it, you can do so much illegally. Why do some people still, corporations can give millions of dollars, yet someone like, I don't know, Dinesh D'Souza went to jail for a relatively small illegal campaign contribution in a Senate campaign. Why, why bother to do that? Well, there are a couple things going on here. One is that even under Citizens United, the court said two things are supposed to happen. One is all this money that's being spent is supposed to be disclosed. Justice Kennedy said in his majority opinion in Citizens United, don't worry about all this new corporate money because it's going to be fully disclosed. Shareholders will know how their corporations are spending their corporate funds and can object, and voters will know who is paying for the advertising they're seeing. Now, that has not happened, but that's not the fault of the Citizens United decision. That's the fault of the fact that the FEC has been deadlocked and completely missing in action, Congress has been deadlocked, so it hasn't been able to pass new laws that would require this. Uh, So on the disclosure side, uh, people are hiding things, as it were, in plain daylight, uh, that they shouldn't be under Citizens United. The other piece of Citizens United is that the court said that corporations can make these independent expenditures, but they are the corporation deciding on their own to do this without coordinating with candidates or party committees. And that's not happening. What is happening instead is that candidates and party committees are often side-by-side with the independent spending groups and with some of the corporate spenders. You look at these super PACs, and the corporations are supposed to give them the money with no involvement by candidates, and the PACs are supposed to spend the money on advertising with no involvement by candidates or party committees. What the reality is, candidates go out and ask for some of the money, they thank the donors, they appear at super PAC events, and the super PACs are created out of the campaigns and run by people who were the campaign manager or a close friend of the camp of the candidates. Again, that's not a Citizens United problem. That is a failure of our enforcement agencies. So in that environment, what happens is people mistakenly think that there really aren't rules. Gosh, I can do anything. I've heard about all these super PACs and corporate expenditures, and they miss the fact that there are actually some some real traffic signals here. So the example of Cohen is, is fairly typical. The example of D'Souza as well, where they think, well, no one's really enforcing these rules, and I understand I can pretty much do what I want, and so they 
they just go right through the red light. Yeah. There was one criminal case that that is similar in some ways to the Trump scenario, which was the John Edwards case. Uh, He was prosecuted for paying hush money to a mistress as an illegal campaign contribution, but he was acquitted. Why did that charge not stick? Right. That is both similar and different. There are a couple uh, key. The, The similarity is that both involved a mistress, and in both cases, somebody who was not in the campaign and not the candidate gave a lot of money. In the Edwards case, it was a wealthy donor who loved Edwards and was trying, she said, trying to be helpful to him in a situation where he had a child and needed to pay to uh, help the child and the mother of the child uh, live, have a place to live, have living expenses, have food, etc., now, one of the differences there is that was more than a year before the election. Mm-hmm. So Edwards maintained that this wasn't an election expense, that he would have done this whether or not there was an election pending, because he didn't want his wife, who was ill, to know about uh, his conduct. And the jury deadlocked. So some of them believed it was in connection with the election. Some of them accepted the fact that he would have done it election or no election, either to help out the mother of his child or uh, to avoid the embarrassment with his wife. So that was a factual dispute. No one admitted that it was in connection with the election. In the Trump case, on the other hand, there are two big differences. The first is the timing. This was done three weeks before the election, in the middle of a national furor, Uh, as a result of the Access Hollywood tapes about Trump's relationships with women and how he treated women. So at that stage, to have women coming forward saying they were his mistresses uh, or they'd had long-term relations with him right after the birth of his son, when he was newly married, etc., would have presented a real political vulnerability for him just before the election when it was, in fact, a topic that was central to the closing days of the campaign. So the timing is different. And partly we know that because earlier on, a couple years earlier, Stormy Daniels told her story. And the Trump people, which is to say, in this case, Michael Cohen, didn't offer her $130,000 of hush money. They wrote a letter to the magazine saying, if you publish that, we'll sue. But there was no hush money involved. So presumably, it wasn't important back in 2011, but it was important in October of 16. And the, the apparent difference is that one of them was right before the election and the other was long before he ever became a candidate. So the timing here is different than Edwards. The other key difference is uh, that in the Trump case, again, you have Michael Cohen saying, I did it because of the election. Candidate Trump told me to do it because... He didn't want this money coming out at this news coming out, uh, this story, and influencing the election. But if this were a, a case in court, if he was imagine Trump were being prosecuted after leaving office or whatever, he could make a version of this defense where he would it was saying, I was paying this money to hide it from my wife. I would have paid it anyway. The timing, despite what it looks like, was coincidental and Michael Cohen is lying. I mean, that could be a, it could be a yeah, defense to the charge. It would, be, it would be Trump versus Cohen. The question is, are there any more tapes? Are there any uh, documents or emails that would support one side or the other? Remember that Cohen, though, is only one of the two 
payors here. The other is the corporate entity uh, that owns the National Enquirer newspaper. So you have another set of witnesses who are detailed in the Cohen indictment. And Cohen describes, because Cohen was in the middle of that payment too, Cohen also describes that as made for the purpose of influencing the election. So the question is, what is it that the national media people, who we are told have been granted immunity in return for their testimony, what is it that they are going to say about their payment? Did Trump know about it? Was it because of the election? Did they call Trump and say, you need to make this payment because we, you're in the middle of the election and this will look terrible? That's Cohen's testimony. So the question is, what is the National Enquirer executive's testimony going to be uh, if and when that actually is argued in court? Trevor, thanks for making all this so clear. I know you're you're off this weekend to John McCain's memorial service. You were the uh, legal counsel, if I remember correctly, to both John McCain's presidential campaigns, both the um, the delightful one in 2000 and the somewhat more dreary one in 2008. But um, I I would say it sure says something about John McCain that not only was he the sponsor of the the most significant campaign finance legislation, but that he wanted you to advise him on campaign finance. It's kind of the opposite of Trump world. Well, McCain absolutely went into the 2000 race with campaign finance being one of his top issues. He said he thought our system was corrupt at the time he was pushing the McCain-Feingold reform bill, which I had worked with him on. But it is the opposite of Trump world because McCain uh, made it clear that not only did he want an absolutely clean campaign himself, but that he wanted to be president in order to clean up government. So the the original drain the swamp language really could have come out of the McCain campaign in in 2000. Uh, And even though he didn't win the Republican nomination or the presidency then, he went back to the Senate and worked as hard as I have ever seen anyone work to pass the McCain-Feingold reform law to try to deal with the large amounts of money being raised and spent. And what he thought was the the uh, inherently corrupt system that it gave us in Congress, where members had their hand out to special interests and then uh, were raising money from those interests, and those interests were then urging them to vote for and against uh, legislation. And McCain always maintained that there was far too close a linkage between those two uh, and, and, and really fought for it. So I, I think you're right that McCain was not surprised, and and as this whole Trump story continues, will not be surprised at uh, what's going on, because he thought there were still corrupt aspects of the system, and he always said that it would take a major scandal to get true reform, and this may end up being uh, that sort of major scandal. And I agree with you about the major scandal part. I'm not so sure about the true reform. I've been uh, speaking to Trevor Potter. He's the former chairman of the Federal Election Commissioner. Trevor, thanks for joining me on Trumpcast today. Thanks very much. A pleasure to be with you. And that's our show. But I want to remind listeners, once again, sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus so you don't miss any episodes of Trumpcast. Also, come watch us at the Texas Tribune Festival. Tickets at slate.com slash live. And follow us on Twitter at Real Trumpcast. It's the easiest way to connect with us and keep up with the show. 
Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Our sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman. Thanks, guys. And I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>